Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a special parliamentary recess episode of Commons People. I'm Arj Sin and I'm joined this week by Matt Hancock's former special advisor, Jamie Njoku Goodwin, who is also now the chief executive of UK Music. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Arj. Lovely to be here. I see you there in your UK Music office with uh, vinyls behind you. I imagine it's quite different from the Department of Health. Uh, it is very different to the Department of Health, um, but it does seem very much like the Department of Culture. Uh, so... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, indeed, which which you did spend a little bit of time at as well. Um, but Jamie has come on the podcast to talk about a new UK music study, which encouragingly shows that representation of minorities has improved across the board in the music industry. But it also warns that this is concentrated at younger and more junior levels, with diversity stalling at senior and mid-management. It's perhaps a familiar story for Westminster watchers, and we're going to explore whether any lessons can be learned for improving diversity in Parliament and government, and touch on some of the political debates around the issue. Um, we also can't let this chat pass without discussing Jamie's experience at the side of Health Secretary Matt Hancock as the government tried to grip coronavirus over the spring. Uh, but first off, Jamie, can you tell us what's in the report, first of all? Of course. So I'd start by saying, I think throughout history, civilizations are always defined by their culture, and the music industry is always sort of told Britain's story in a way. Um, and so as an industry, we've always been very clear that if we're going to be representing modern Britain, um, then we also need to be reflecting modern Britain um, and telling that story of the country we are today. So as an industry, diversity is uh, is vitally important for us. Um, and to that end, we put it front and centre of our agenda. So every two years, we conduct a workforce diversity survey. Um, and we've got the latest data uh, from this year's survey today. And as you say, it is a, there's lots of positives in it. Uh, it's a, there's a huge increase in the numbers of women and people from ethnic minorities working in the industry. Uh, which is obviously a good thing. Um, but one of the things that we've picked up on is that people from diverse backgrounds are still broadly overrepresented at lower career levels um, and, and underrepresented at more senior levels. So the task for the music industry now is to essentially make sure the positive figures we're seeing and the positive uh, movements we're seeing in terms of people joining the industry from different backgrounds bears up when we get to senior levels and we're making sure that the whole industry is uh, is is uh, is looking like the the population as a as a large so to that uh, to that end we've developed a 10 point plan so it's a it's a bold report and a bold plan but also one that i think is applicable to industries not just the music industry but industries kind of across the economy across society um and also as i'm sure we'll come on to in a in a, in a moment um yeah. uh, westminster and politics because the 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 symptoms are often the same across different uh, across different industries um and so the cure can sometimes be quite similar too yeah that's exactly what we will do we will discuss some of those recommendations in the 10 point plan because they they have definite read across to Westminster and this is after all a politics podcast uh, but on that note staying on music but also politics um, the report sort of focuses on racial and gender diversity but the pandemic has sparked some discussion around 
what is happening to different classes and how the pandemic is affecting different classes. And uh, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak obviously got in some hot water after suggesting that musicians who can't work due to the restrictions can maybe retrain in other fields. Uh, now, I know he disputes the way the interview is framed, but we've been left with the impression and a lot of musicians have been left with the impression that that's what he was suggesting. Um, what did you make of that and what sort of message do you think that that sent? So it was interesting. I, I, when I first saw that report, I felt like I was back in my previous job where uh, <laughs> there'd been a slight misquotation of what someone had said, and I was going to be spending my entire afternoon trying to uh, try to convince people that actually no, he hadn't said this. He said this. I think with these things, often people get hent up on what the interpretation was, and either don't well, they don't really judge people on what the actual results and delivery are. I thought when I looked at the transcript of that interview, uh, again. The point which you see now was trying to make, in my opinion, was that there's huge change going on um, and he was trying to level with people that not every single job was going to be safe. But ironically, actually, the example he used was the arts industry and the music industry and the theatre industry, whereby they are going under huge radical changes to make sure they can still be do doing what they doing what they want to be doing, doing what they love doing. So when he said people need to adapt to the new normal, the example he actually used was theatre um, and music lessons. And music is a great example whereby you've had artists who have adapted the way they have worked and adapted the way they would have previously approached their jobs to still do what they love doing and do so well, but doing it in a different way, whether that's looking at doing things online, looking at new ways of reaching new audiences, looking at new ways they can be doing things in a COVID secure way. I, I don't think that, <laughs> I'm fairly sure, the government policy is not that musicians should have to retrain. Um, again, and I, I spent my fair bit of time when I worked in government getting in debates about what someone meant and whether it was interpreted the proper way. I always quite like to focus on what people do rather than what they say or what they suggest. Um, last week, we had 1.57 billion from the Cultural Recovery Fund. Uh, which was good news to the industry as a whole. Obviously, it didn't. Uh, it doesn't solve every issue we've got, and there's still huge. There's still a lot of issues that, uh, particularly freelancers and self-employed people in the music industry, have got. Uh, our exposure to that, so you're aware, is the fact that 72% of the music industry is made up of freelancers and self-employed. So the struggles that people who are self-employed and freelancing are facing across the economy, um, and it isn't just a music a music industry issue. It's across the economy. The music industry is particularly exposed to that because of how dependent we are on the self-employed and on the freelancers. Yeah. Um, but I think the music industry is going to be a key part of the post-pandemic cultural and economic recovery. Um, I hope the government uh, the government buys into that and agrees with that. Um, and I think we'll we'll, uh, we'll 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 judge it on on results and see how how much support the music industry is getting as we get go through this pandemic. But look, I the Richard, after 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 that. Uh, <laughs> After that incident, Rishi was very quick to come out and say that is not what he meant. That was not what he was kind of misquoted. Um, and the fact that the fact that the government was so clear and quick to, to rebut that and make clear that was not at all what was in, intended or suggested um, is um, is very encouraging. Yeah, I guess, I guess at the heart of that, though, was that this idea that the music industry isn't getting enough support and, and the Chancellor was pointing towards retraining schemes while having that discussion. Um, is there anything just quickly you specifically want to see that the government isn't doing at the moment to help the music industry? Of course. So the challenges the music industry faces um, are short term rather than long term, actually. So there are many industries that uh, will not be the 
saying post-pandemic um, that they won't just bounce back. There's been fundamental disruptive changes uh, that this pandemic has engendered that many industries are going to be struggling with. Uh, fortunately, the music industry isn't necessarily one of those. Um, post-pandemic, there's a lot of promise, there's a lot of potential, and there's a lot of future for the music industry once you get through this pandemic. The challenge the industry faces now um, is a short-term one. It's how do we get through to the other side of the pandemic when we can start delivering for Britain again? I mean, we're a £5.2 billion industry. We support 190,000 jobs, £2.8 billion worth of exports. Once this pandemic is over, there's no reason that we can't start doing that once again. But the job for government is to make sure that it is... that. Well, to make sure that cultural infrastructure, but also the people that are working in our cultural and creative industries um, are there to be able to generate that economic re revenue for the UK when we do get to the end of this pandemic. So it's, I mean, it's difficult. There's, it's a pandemic, so we completely appreciate this isn't normal times, um, but making sure that the government as a whole is supporting the industry and making sure they're supporting both the cultural infrastructure and the people that work in it is, um, is vital. Right, so do you think the freelance uh, grants go far enough at the moment? Or do you need to see, or do you want to see continuing at that level for a while? The, I think the issue that people face in the music sector in particular is it isn't just a question of people who have been told they can't work and are being supported or who can work and generate economic income. As an industry, people, and one of the things that's so wonderful about the music industry uh, and musicians, they want to be, they want to be working. This isn't just a job of people. It's not just kind of like putting food on the table. It's something people want to be doing. They're, it's a livelihood. It's a way of life. And if there's a way for people working in the sector to be generating their own revenue, then they want to be doing it. They're not, as an industry, we're not, we're not just looking for a handout. We're not just looking for kind of like permanent subsidisation. We just want to be able to provide for ourselves and generate our own economic income. The problems we're sometimes finding now as an industry is we're falling between the crack because lots of, particularly venues, uh, but lots of live acts are legally allowed to happen. Live events are legally allowed to happen, but with the social distancing that's required, it's not economically viable for them to take place at that level. And look, I, I come from the Department for Health. I completely get why it's important to be doing these things. Um, as an industry, we want to be doing things in a safe way. We do not want to be um, sparking an increase of cases in any way, but we are finding ourselves falling between the cracks of being allowed to, being allowed to function but not being able to function in a way that we can actually be generating our own income. So making sure that government is, is, is supporting us to either be able to generate our own economic income um, or to be supported until we can, I think is the, is the main ask from, from, for government from the industry. Okay, we, we should move on um, and talk about some aspects of this 10-point plan. Uh, one of the most striking conclusions of the report was that the music industry should drop the term BAME or BAME black and minority ethnic. Now, sorry to give you flashbacks of your time in government again, but your old boss, Matt Hancock, got in trouble over this when he was asked how many black cabinet members there are at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests and named three Asians. Uh, so can you just explain why it's important to drop that term and, and whether you think that actually maybe Matt's comments at the time showed the importance of perhaps dropping that term. It's an interesting one. I think there's there's a variety of views about actually about dropping it and why you would want to drop it. So for many people, the term "babe" is is offensive and and sort of dehumanising. They feel they're just being referred to as an acronym. Um, for lots of others, it's just not helpful and actually a little bit pointless. So the example I use is 
BAME will lump in uh, a black African, someone from Pakistan, and a white gypsy. There are, there are also now, there are huge different ethnic groups there, all who face different disparities, um, different challenges, and different historical uh, experiences, but they find themselves being lumped into one, uh, one specific category. Um, and so actually being able to, rather than look at people who aren't white and assume they all have the same experiences, the same outcomes and the same disparities, actually getting away from just lumping everyone into one, one tag uh, and one, uh, one, one category, uh, making sure that you can actually really drill down and see where the, diverse, where the disparities are is actually helpful from a, from a, from a position of boosting diversity. Um, in terms of when Matt was, I remember, I remember it well. We had a, we had a heated conversation at the uh, at, at, at the time. Um, there was a discussion about whether government was well, was diverse enough, whether government was open to having people to and was was supportive of having people from a whole range of diverse backgrounds. Um, and I think the example used was that as a as a party and as a government, um, having people like Pretty Patel in cabinet having when people like, well, I can't remember if Sajid was, no, it was after Sajid had left, but people like Priti Patel, people like Rishi Sunak. Um, I think often 20 years ago, people leveled the charge at the Conservative Party that it was a racist party. Um, I don't think anyone could look at the cabinet and the party that the Conservative Party have now and claim that it's racist. You can have people saying it needs to be even more diverse than it is. But the idea that as a party, the Conservative Party was not welcoming people from different backgrounds and was not a place where people from different diverse backgrounds could um, could do well and could succeed, um, I think is obviously wrong. And I think that's the I think that's the point Matt was making at the time. And I, I, I remember that at the time I uh, I was I was I was so angry with a number of uh, a number of prominent journalists trying to to say the government was had had well had, was essentially well suggesting that the government was if not racist was not a place where people from different backgrounds and people from black backgrounds could succeed. Um, doing a bit of a thought experiment and for a week I boycotted speaking to anyone who wasn't black from the from the lobby. And it was a very, very, very quiet week I had for me. Because I think every sort of institution, every single, uh, every occupation um, probably can be doing more when it comes to diversity. Um, and the media has probably just got just as much to do um, as Parliament and, and politics does. But I think it's a, a lot of it's a case of being able to look at what we want to do, look at where the issues are, look at where the disparities are, and take it from there. So you're, the question about are there enough black people in cabinet? Yeah, is a fascinating one because once you drill down into are there enough black people in cabinet? Now that's a debate that 15 years ago the premise of that would have been there's racism. And the reason there aren't enough kind of black people, people from a, from a quote, BAME, BAME background, um, is, because of, is because of purely racism. Now, get into a situation where you can get away from using that catch-all tag and actually start saying, actually, you've got lots of people from certain ethnic backgrounds, but not many people from another. What's the reason for that? What are the barriers that people from those backgrounds might be facing? So black if you're black african you're much more likely to be better in education than you, if you're black caribbean the disparity between those two is huge now what's the reason for that and again i know something that um your colleagues i've both have done 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 lots on previously yeah educational attainment of white working class boys is awful and if you put that next to some people from um, ethnically diverse backgrounds often like personally i'm i'm probably oh, statistically i'd prefer to be born a black nigerian in britain than a white working class boy in terms of educational outcome. And so from that sense, I was probably quite fortunate. Like, yeah. once you- And we should say you came, you came from a, a working class background as well, right? 
yeah. I should say that. So yeah. I, it's, I found personally, um, and this is kind of going into political experience, um, one of the challenges I faced in terms of coming into, um, particularly into politics, but it will be saying for the media um, and for the music industry, um, entry-level jobs are often based on experience, which often need, means you need to be doing unpaid internships. Uh, now, unpaid internships, have, a lot of them have been done away with now, but seven years ago when I was at entry level, it was one of the only ways you could get into an industry. I was lucky because I lived in London. I had lots of friends, uh, people I've gone to university with, people I knew quite well, who live way outside London, were from a much higher socioeconomic background than me, were essentially white middle class, but struggled to get into their industries because of a, it was a situation where it was based purely on experience and into an unpaid internship. I was ironically lucky that despite being working class and from a mixed race background, because I lived in London, I never had opportunities to be doing these things. So it, this is why it, I think it comes back to the point we're, we're both making of looking at where the disparities are, looking at what's driving them and identifying what the barriers are that you need to be addressing to make sure that you be having as diverse a pool of uh, people for jobs as possible yeah yeah and uh, another thing that the report highlights is the importance of kind of organizations that operate outside or on the edges of major institutions in doing this sort of thing so Theresa may was was hugely credited with improving the fortunes of women in the tory party through her women to win project but that and you do see that the kind of those organizations maybe on the labor side but on the tory side there aren't you don't see many similar groups as conservative friends of India and stuff like that, but especially for black or mixed race people in the conservative party, there doesn't seem to be anyone banging that drum and advocating and, and highlighting those people and those issues that they might uniquely face out, you know, outside the BAME uh, kind of label. Why do you think that is? And, and do you, would you like to see a, an MP, for example, pick this up and run with it? <laughs> It is. It's a, it's a fascinating question. So one of the things that came up in the focus group, so we did extensive focus group for this report to hear it, to, to hear from people from all different backgrounds, what they wanted to see, what they thought there wasn't enough of and what they needed uh, to succeed more in their view. And one of the things that consistently came up from people, particularly from uh, ethnic minorities, was the importance of mentoring. Um, it was the importance of not just having role models, but having people they could go to who had gone through what they'd gone through, had their experience, and they felt comfortable in having those conversations with and being able to being able to guide them through the process. Because um, careers are difficult, and you you often you you find yourself needing to have that sort of experience, to having need to have that, that sort of person who's done these things before who could be guiding you through it. Uh, Women to Win was transformational for the Conservative Party. So if you go back to 2005, um, I think the Conservative Party had something like, I think, was it 19 um, women MPs? It was, it was a very small number. And, and the idea of women to win, that was set up by uh, Baroness Jenkins and Theresa May, uh, this was back when Theresa May was, uh, I can't remember her cabinet position, but it was before she was Prime Minister. Um, but what it essentially did was provide a repository of institutional kind of knowledge and uh, understanding where... Uh, women MPs could mentor people who wanted to get involved in politics. Maybe they didn't come from a political background. Maybe they didn't really know how they would even want to get into politics if they if they didn't have those connections, that networks and those experience. They coached, they mentored, um, and they brought a whole generation of women into politics um, as Conservative MPs. Uh, and it's something, 
It's, I mean, it's I mean, the number of women MPs we have in Parliament at the moment is, we had 17 back in 2005. Um, we've now got, I don't, I don't actually have the latest number to hand, but it, it's huge. Um, and there's, it's been incredibly impressive how having a body, having a some sort of group or organisation that's dedicated to improving representation among women has has benefited the Conservative Party massively. I don't think yeah. I think you struggle to find anyone who thinks women to win hasn't been a huge positive for the Conservative Party. Um, it's you're right. I mean, it would be it'd be great to see something along the same lines for people from from, from ethnic minorities, uh, because one of the problems people from ethnic minorities face is if I. I know plenty of people who are not particularly interested in politics, are from an ethnic minority, are doing incredibly well in the world of business, charity, teachers, who are interested in public affairs and current affairs and politics, but don't really know what they would need to do if they wanted to um, to become involved and become engaged. Um, and yeah, having, having some sort of body whereby, or some sort of organisation along the lines of Women to Win, to help provide those mentoring opportunities um, and uh, and really help people get into politics would be probably good for the Conservative Party and good for good for politics as a whole. And what what was it like for you as a mixed race guy in Westminster, a special advisor? Did you did you feel like you you lacked a, a mentor? Did you feel like you needed one? Do you think you could have you've been helped by one? The biggest challenge I always faced was actually whenever I had um, I go to posh receptions and dinners and and lunches and things, um, and I just wasn't used to it. Um, and actually, that was, it comes back to the early, the early conversation we were having. Actually, that was because I came from a background, not because, not necessarily because I was mixed race, because I came from a background where you're not used to going to receptions. You're not quite sure how you're meant to kind of dress these sorts of things. You're not quite sure how you're meant to do like lunches and dinners. Um, I thought I, I learned it the hard way. Um, but you still, uh, I still had instances where the, the one I always used to have was that I was often confused for a very prominent. Um, so Stephen Bush, who is one of probably the greatest political commentators alive today. Yeah, I'm sorry, for, for clarity, Stephen Bush and Jamie don't look anything like each other apart from both being mixed race. I, <laughs> I mean, he's he's a brilliant writer. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met. So I was always very I was always. <laughs> But it was interesting because it was people who would sort of just see me, see him, would think we'd have the same. Um, I think there was there was one case where, uh, well, there was a case when an MP came up to come and slag someone off to me, thinking that he was briefing against someone and actually not realising he was thinking. <laughs> to, <laughs> thinking to probably got some advisor. good information like that. <laughs> Um, I, I, I worry about what Stephen got in uh, got when people were conf confused with me there, but it was it was. It, often happen in Westminster, and it was partly an indictment of how undiverse it's sometimes a place it, some, it, some, it sometimes was. I think it has been amazing to look at the past 10 years and see how far Westminster has um, has come and see some of the people, one, who have come from a whole lot of diverse backgrounds, but also, I think, very important as well, they're not just viewed as being from diverse from diverse backgrounds. They have a, they're, they're there on merit. They aren't just there because um, sort of, uh, the Conservative Party needed to have some sort of uh, some people from diverse backgrounds or people from different ethnic minorities. There are people who are there on their own merit and are going to go on to do absolutely brilliant things. People like, I mean, Kemi Badenoch, who is um, yeah. absolutely superb. People like James Cleverley, people like Bim Afalami. There's a whole generation of, of young, dynamic, ethnically diverse politicians who are coming through the political system um, and are doing it, again, purely on their own, on their own merit, but also really showing, really making a case for why it's beneficial to us as a country to be having um, as diverse a, a pool of people as possible.
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Kemi Badenoch there, the Equalities Minister. She, she caused some controversy last week by uh, disowning Black Lives Matter, describing it as a, as a political kind of left-wing movement, um, and said she didn't want pupils, school pupils, being taught about the issue of white privilege. What did you make of that? Because there'd be Black MPs, Asian MPs on, on around Parliament that would totally disagree with that and say that actually this is a sign that Boris Johnson's government is trying to minimise the experiences of people from uh, Black, Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, but obviously she is a, a Black minister and a Black MP, so I'm just wondering what you made of that. Yeah, it's it, many people from white backgrounds might make the arguments that she did um, and would sometimes be labelled as being racist for making the arguments that she did. Um, the fact, actually, the, the fact that you can have, and I, I remember, I, I've, you see the clips of uh, Kemi sort of making these arguments um, and saying sort of um, saying things that lots of there's, well, there's no monopoly of black people think black or people or people from ethnic minorities thinking the same sort of thing, um, and the idea that sometimes because someone from an ethnic minority makes a particular argument, that's how the whole community uh, feels is one just wrong and two sometimes <laughs> it's I mean it's, it's, it's essentially racist it's assuming that everyone's sort of got the same view um, and Kemi making an arg making an argument um, about things like critical race theory that there's no consensus there's no consensus on critical race theory and the idea that critical race theory is universally accepted um, among people who are from ethnic minorities um, is is frankly wrong um, and the idea that I mean having uh, Kemi being able to and Kemi Bagenot making that argument in, in Parliament and actually having, this it was almost an iconic Im image to me of having two leading politicians from ethnic, uh, from ethnic minorities making yeah. an argument about how we should be handling diversity, what we should be doing on kind of on race issues and inclusion, um, was well, a testament to, <laughs> to our politics of the coming day that we can, one, be comfortable as a society to be having these arguments. Um, and there, there are strong views on both sides. Um, and there are valid views on both sides, but the fact we're able to have these arguments, you can have these arguments out in the open, um, and you can reach a point where you can be arguing about how you best have a more diverse politics, and the way you get there is, I think it's good and it's positive, and it's something, it's a debate that we should be having. Yeah, it's interesting. What I found interesting there was, I mean, we sort of skirted around it, but generally speaking, Westminster is one of the whitest places in the, yeah. in the country, right? Why do you think it is so bad and do we need more targets i know your report calls for targets in the in the music industry it's it's a very different place but um keir starmer's opened the door i think to all bame targets sorry to use that term where even though you, you don't want, want it to be used but all bame shortlist for the labor party do you think that sort of thing works could it work for the tories it, they come, come come from a completely different ideology i guess conservative party so maybe it doesn't fit yeah so I'm fundamentally opposed to all ethnic or all uh, kind of all eth all, all <laughs> I don't know what even what you even call it. Um, you, all, you need to come up with a replacement if it's <laughs> scratch every call. But having a having shortlist where you're just taking people from ethnic minorities, what's the premise for that? And this is where the, this, the issue of data comes in as being so important. I think if Keir Starmer is saying we need to have shortlists that are just of people from ethnic backgrounds, what he's basically saying is that we think our local associations or our local CRPs are all racist. And the only reason 
they're not picking people from different backgrounds is because they're always going to go for the white person. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm not um, I'm not an expert on the on the Labour Party. Um, I'm, I'd, I'd, I'd never suggest that um, CLPs are racist before I, before I knew which ones we were talking about. Um, <laughs> but um, the, it's fascinating. CCHQ actually looked into this about five years ago. They did a they did a bit of a study where they wanted to try and find out what they needed to be doing to get more people from diverse backgrounds in as candidates. And so they looked at every stage of the recruitment process. Where are people going through? Where are people falling down? And again, there's, there's often a there's often the belief in Westminster that the people in Westminster are those very sort of uh, very open and, and very open and kind of liberal and very um, accommodating. Um, and sometimes when you get to associations, people in associations are the one who will be pushing back against this sort of stuff. Actually, when CCSQ looked into this. What they found was if you were from an ethnic minority, you were actually more likely to be selected when you went to associations to be selected. So it wasn't at all the case that there are all these ethnic minority candidates who were being put through to constituency selections. It was a case that there weren't enough coming through the pool in the very first place. If you got people from ethnic backgrounds and ethnic minorities to the, the to, to, to local constituency selections, they would probably find themselves getting selected. So the challenge wasn't just having all kind of either all gender or all um, uh, kind of all black or all BAME shortlists. Um, it was having a system where you, by you could make sure that you were attracting as many people to be applying in the first place, supporting them through, make sure they knew how to kind of get through the process and were supported as they go through the process. I, I um, rather guess... than rather rather than just having a, a system where you say, right, the way you solve this problem is by just having what kind of all either all women shortlists or all all, all certain shortlists because that doesn't address the it might feel like you're addressing the problem it might address the symptoms but actually it doesn't actually address the underlying problems that you face yeah i think i think you you'd probably agree that it's something for both both sides left and right and and whatever center to to consider um now i've just got to ask you quickly what what it was like being in the government at the department for health as coronavirus kind of started the grip, gripping the nation in spring can you give us any insight on what it was like being in Whitehall as this crazy new reality was unfolding? Yeah, so to, to sort of, not, not to correct you, but to, to take it back, it, uh, it wasn't even spring, it was January. It was, uh, it was actually my, it was actually my birth, my, it was my, my birthday when I, when I sort of uh, uh, first, first, first got a call about a flight coming back from Wuhan. Happy um, birthday. Yes, and it's uh, and that was that ended up being the high point of my <laughs> my year. Um, it's firstly, it was incredible to be working in a scenario in a situation whereby everyone and absolutely everyone there was basically just trying to do their best in and actually doing their best in very very difficult circumstances. So it's very easy for people now to say, "We now know this about the virus. Why didn't you do this? We now know this. Why didn't you do this?" In well. Mid, mid to late January, government was essentially trying to work out how best to go forward and how best to tackle a virus that had emanated in China. You weren't getting clear data on. You didn't really know exactly how transmissible it was. You didn't know exactly how, um, uh, how fatal it was. And you were essentially having to make a whole load of decisions on the best information you had at the time. Um, and I sort of maintain, I think, if you speak to anyone who's working in that environment now, um, the decisions we made and the decisions that were made were the best possible decisions based on the information you had. Um, no one, 
if you have 100% accurate and detailed information, it's easy to make decisions. It's easy to make decisions. One of the hardest things about government is having to make those judgment calls where you don't have all the information. You don't know exactly about the, the threat you're facing, but you're having to make the best decisions based on based on what you know. So people, whether on the scientific people like kind of Chris Whitty and JVT, who are like some of the world's most eminent and experienced epidemiologists, um, and whether it's kind of ministers from health, ministers from treasury, ministers from number 10, um, everyone is essentially doing, the very, doing their very best, um, trying to make difficult and sometimes life-changing decisions on the information they had. And I think if you took almost anyone back to those early days and asked them to make those very, those very same decisions based on the information we had at the time, I think that the same decisions would have, been, would have been made. How do you account then, I guess, for, for, if you look at a country like New Zealand, they locked down much earlier in the pandemic than us or in, in their epidemic as they had in their country or if you look at um germany the government has kind of answered the question of germany they're lucky to have all the diagnostic facilities there um they rolled out mass testing much quicker than we did although maybe we now have more i'm not sure exactly but um do you think there are any regrets in the government do you have any about how it was done so the international comparison was always was always interesting because every every month there was every month there was literally a different country i remember the times and there were still newspaper spreads that i've got in a drawer somewhere saying italy and the us had it right because they were telling people they were stopping international well sorry they were screening people at airports and there was all this sort of people saying Italy and the us you need to be screening temperatures at airports um in the end screening people for temperatures meant a whole load of cases just got through and it had a whole well and the countries believed they got it completely right and thought that um they'd caught all these cases was actually they were sort of letting people through um italy and italy and the us were were sort of poster childs for good coronaviruses in february uh it then went germany in march people then started saying sweden sweden's got it right then they started saying no sweden's got it wrong then it was sweden's got it right again i can't keep i'm not sure it's, it's, it's i'm not sure sweden is in the is in the they've got it right or that they've got it wrong category at the moment it seems, depends, it seems where, to oscillate. depends which side you're on <laughs> it seems to oscillate between the two but there there is a real element of, it's a it's a pandemic and there is no kind of and i say it's an inverted commons right answer there's it's not like some sort of puzzle some sort of algorithm that you just have to kind of make the right make the right make, make the right calculation on and suddenly you've got the perfect way through lots of countries have got completely different setups they've got i mean if you look at kind of uh, population density in new zealand compared to kind of population density in the uk um and just seeing the disparities in the uk even if you look at what's happening covid in places like devon and cornwall compared to places in kind of the north northeast northwest of um of of, of the UK, you get a very different picture. And it's partly because this virus, one, breeds on social contact, uh, but also it, 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 it's, um, it's a new virus that no one's really seen before. And we still don't know, we still don't know, um, we still don't know exactly, exactly what's gonna happen to it over the next few months. Um, and we still don't know which country has got it completely right. There's a whole strategy um, and a whole ap approach that sort of needs to be taken on these things, um, and it's it's difficult. I don't think I don't think anyone who's who'd been through the past six months or nine months would say it's easy because um, it's not. But there's a whole yeah. load of people in government who are doing the very best they can, um, and um, again, it's been a, it's been an interesting experience. Yeah, just 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 on that, you know, you, you you obviously you know it's all still right there at the front of your mind. I guess it's hard not to be, even though you've you've moved on. your UK music now. What sort of hours were you pulling? Like, were you working seven day weeks? How much sleep were you getting? What were you guys all surviving on? And how did you do it with working from home and stuff? 
how difficult was it to actually run the thing during that time? Yeah, so I'd, my experience was always, it, it was similar to an election. Uh, and elections are all consuming um, and they don't stop. Um, and there's always stuff happening. That's why I, um, that's why I use that example. Uh, the thing about an election is you always know there's an end point. So in a general election, I've done three general elections now, and they are all consuming and they destroy you. But you know that on December 13th or May the 6th, it's going to be over. Um, the thing that is so, has been so wearing for this pandemic is there's no end point. You don't really know when it's going to be over. I mean, my, my day would normally consist of getting up about half past five um, to sort of read press coverage, listening to the Hay program at six o'clock. Um, shouting at the radio. Shout, oh, I thought you were going to say shouting at, shout at journalists. I never, I never, I'd never <laughs> shout at journalists. I tried to be as, as polite no, no, you're as, all, no, no. as possible. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then sort of once you're into it, it's, um, it's there, kind of like today program at six, you then have a whole lot of calls and things with people, people but, but, I mean, I mean, by the time you get into the office at sort of nine, um, eight, eight, nine, you've been working for three hours already. Um, and that goes right through until sometimes one, two in the morning. Uh, the, the, the explosion of digital media, um, while uh, <laughs> has been wonderful for some, um, has not been wonderful for government special advisors because the, the old days where your, your life was, even news bulletins and the newspapers would probably be a lot easier. Whereas now you've got morning emails kind of landing at seven o'clock in the morning where you need to be speaking to people over kind of WhatsApp and calls sometimes until three o'clock in the morning. Um, and then um, again, up at, up at 5.30 again to do the morning, the morning broadcast, the morning headlines. Yeah. So it was, it was intensive, but it's, I think, I think lots of people, found this, lots of people were coming for criticism and lots of people kind of get a lot of stick, but everyone, people working in government, they're doing it because they believe in public service, but also they want to do the very best they can. Um, and it's a lot easier to be doing those sorts of hours where you know you're doing it for, for a good cause and you know you're doing the very best you can um, than, it, than, it, than it is sort of in, in, in peacetime, as they used to call it. Yeah, OK. Just, just a final one. There's quite a few Tory backbenchers now gunning for your old boss, Matt, uh, Matt Hancock. Um, do you, what, what would be your message to them? They don't like how kind of pro-lockdown he is and they think he's done a bad job. What would you say to them? I mean, that's obviously completely wrong. I think <laughs> since the no, I've so I've, I worked with him kind of outside for uh, well for two, for two two and a half almost three years, um, and since the start of the pandemic, uh, and he's someone who partly is health secretary, but also the person he is. Um, he's determined to protect lives, um, and it's one it's, it's as you would expect your health secretary to do. Um, but he has, I think, he's approached. He's approached this pandemic as you should want your health sector to be, to be doing. Um, and in particular, the thing that always impressed me, I mean, sometimes made it difficult for me, but it always really impressed me. He he ran to, <laughs> he ran towards the danger, so to speak. Sometimes, well, especially when you're in a pandemic and you're health secretary, you're not always dealing with everything that's going right. I mean, by by definition, if you're the health secretary in a pandemic, lots of things are going wrong, lots of things need fixing. Um, and it's very easy for sometimes for politicians to sort of wash their hands of responsibility or say, this isn't me. Um, but he always, he always ran towards danger. He'd look at things like testing and other politicians may have said, actually, this isn't really, I, I could kind of palm this on someone else or say this to someone else. He essentially said, no, I think it's important that 
for the country, we have mass testing capacity. And I know we're only testing 4,000 people, uh, 4, 000, doing 4,000 tests a day at the moment, but I think we need to get that up much higher. I'm going to set a target of 100,000 tests, and we're going to deliver that in a month. And he came in for so much stick during that, so much stick during that. People say it's an arbitrary target. People say, why have you... Um, why have you made that? It's just complete nonsense. Um, it's just going to be your fault when we don't hit that target. And he took on responsibility for that. He drove the system um, and we hit that target. And we're now at testing capacity of about 350,000. Um, he's done amazingly well over this pandemic. And I think it's similar to, I think, well, anyone who's been prime minister will tell you that no one really knows what it's like doing that sort of job. Um, the only person that really knows what it's like to do. So there's a there's a very, very few jobs where the only person who really knows what it's like to do that job are the people who've actually done it. Um, and I think it's really easy to sort of cut from the sidelines and kind of uh, attack, attack people. But you you never really know the options you're given. You only know the decisions people are taking. Um, I think Matt's acquitted himself incredibly well as health secretary, and I think we're quite lucky to have him. Great. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks, Jamie, for joining me. And please make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels. And please be sure to leave a review. Thanks. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.